You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Um, So John is one of the apostles of Jesus. Um, It's the last of the four gospels to be written. Uh, John refers to himself in the gospel as the beloved disciple. We never hear John's name, uh, but we know that John's the writer. He also wrote three letters that are at the end of the New Testament and is also the one who put pen to paper in the revelation of Jesus there at the end of our New Testament. And so, uh, this is John, and John is um, telling us this morning He is uh, opening up for us uh, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he does this by telling us an account, the wedding at Cana. He's the only one that records it. And this is how John records it in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And now there were six stone uh, water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some and take it out to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And When the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But but you've kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus, uh, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Well, that's the word of the Lord. I pray that he will bless the reading and the hearing and our discussion this morning as we walk through it. You know, as a pastor, one of the great joys I have is getting to be part of weddings, and um, uh, premarital counseling is fun, and it's a front row seat to what God's doing when He's knitting two lives together. It's really great. And in wedding days are equally fun, and each, each wedding day has its own, you know, bitter form of disaster. Sometimes it's a nervous groom or you know, you got rowdy groomsmen or and it's just totally stressed out bride. Um, and it never fails. That I always remind couples before a wedding, I was like, hey, look, no matter what happens today, at the end of the day, I mean, if you both say I do, I mean, you'll be married. And, um, but I do remember, so there's one time I was in seminary, my side hustle in seminary was I used to video weddings on uh, the weekends. And I, I might have 
told this before. You might have heard me tell it, but there was one wedding, probably uh, the most interesting of all of them, and I saw a bunch of interesting weddings. But this one was at the First United Methodist Church right there at Highland uh, Park uh, there on the campus at, at SMU. I think it's called First United Methodist. Anyways, it's a big Methodist church there at SMU. Uh, very fancy wedding. In fact, the bride was wearing probably uh, the most expensive bridal gown I have ever seen in my entire life. And she's probably the most unhappy woman I had ever encountered in my entire life, okay? And so I remember there were two things very distinct about this wedding. They did the vows, and during the vows, the, the pastor, and so I've, I've, got a, I've got a mic on the groom, and I'm up in the balcony, and I've, I'm looking through a camera lens, and I'm able to zoom in, and I've got this very nice, beautiful shot right there, bride and groom, and I'm listening to everything in, in my ear. And the, the pastor, he, you know, he's going to vows or doing traditional vows. And, you know, say for, uh, you know, for better or for worse, you know, sickness and in health. It's for richer or for poor. And she says, for richer or for richer. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Wow. Uh, and so the pastor was kind of stunned. I mean, I don't know what I would do. Seriously, if I was standing there, I don't know. I don't know how it goes. So to his credit, he says, you know, it's like, like she misunderstood or something. He's like, no, no, for richer or for poorer. And she says, for richer or for richer. So there was that. <laughs> the pastor, I mean, I don't know. He didn't know what he just kept going. I mean, I, you know, uh, it was that guy's problem after that, I guess. <laughs> and so then after the vows, what they were going to do is kind of their first, you know, thing of, of they were going to light a unity candle. And uh, it turns out they go to light the unity candle, but the groomsmen had cut the wick off of the unity candle. And I don't know if you've ever tried to light a candle that the wick's been cut off of it, but it, uh, it just makes wax. That's all it does. It's like a big swimming pool of wax there, in the, and you can't light it. And so, usually how unity candles go, it's, it's the place in the service where they have a solo or a song, and it's kind of awkward, actually. You know, so they light the candle. It only takes about seven seconds to light the candle, and then everyone stands there awkwardly while the song finishes. Well, not this one. It was full of activity. Um, in fact, no one was listening to the song because everyone's watching the expression on the bride's face and how angry she is and all the places she was telling the groom to go uh, with her facial expressions and all of this. And so finally, the, the pastor, he pulls out of his pocket his keys and he starts trying to dig out <laughs> the candle. Song's over. And he says to tell the bride, he's like, look, it's not going to light, you know, and, so it was over. Every wedding has its stories. Well, this is passage today is a wedding day. And it is not without its own disaster. In fact, if we were in the first century and we were telling about this wedding and if it had had the ending that it looked like it was going to have, it would be a story of stories. We'd tell the story and, 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 and we'd, we'd gasp at the horror of what it would be that a, that a groom's family holds a reception after the wedding, didn't have enough wine, 
for all the guests. It would have been in that culture um, a reason for paralyzing shame. In fact, maybe one that would have, would have followed the couple their entire marriage. And so in the middle of it, Jesus is going to show up. In the middle of this disaster, he's going to solve a problem, keep the couple from the shame. But in the midst of it, John is telling this story because Jesus is doing even things even greater than solving a problem and saving this couple. What Jesus is doing is he's actually pointing to something far greater and something far better to come. And I told you that John is a, a master with language. He writes with the simplest language, the most profound and divine and theological truths. And so I want us to see how John tells us this story and what it is that he's saying about Jesus. And so look with me again. I'll be there in verse 1. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. First thing, it's the mother of Jesus. Mary's never named in this gospel. She's only referred to as the mother of Jesus. John's never named. He's called the beloved. I think there are probably some reasons for that to talk about it another day. But just to know, Mary's never named. We know her name from the other Gospels. And then it says there's this wedding at Cana, which if you were to look at the structure of John, this is the beginning of what's called the Cana cycle, if you will. John will begin here in chapter 2. He will end chapter 4 with another miracle at Cana. And every miracle in between the beginning of two and the end of four has this theme. This theme is a, is a new wine, and then you'll see there's a new temple, and then you'll see there's a, a new birth and a new way to worship. And in a sense, what's happening is that John is declaring the same thing Paul does in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that the old is gone and the new is come. He's, he's, he's foreshadowing what Jesus will say at the end of Revelation when Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. And there is this contrast that's going to be played out in here of things old and things new. Of things that were. And, and the best has been saved until the last. And so he begins on the third day. Now, I'll tell you this very interesting thing about John. He has a, he has a thing with, uh, with the number seven. And you say, well, where did he get seven? It's the third day. Well, I'll tell you here in a second. The third day is interesting, though. He, he doesn't use the third day when he talks about the resurrection, although he describes it, and it, it is the third day. And we find that out also from the other Gospels. But he announces it here. Here's the third day. Here's a third day to draw our minds to the end. Here's a third day to foreshadow a greater third day to come. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry on earth. But if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we also talked about that what John does at the very beginning of this gospel is he takes us really all the way back to creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and he's spelling out, hey, listen, in Jesus here, he's the Word, and he's also the Creator, because there's nothing that was made that has been made that didn't come from him. And what's fascinating is John is going to record at the end of chapter 1, and right here at the beginning of chapter 2, a series of days, he's going to give us some time markers in ways that he does not the rest of the gospel. So look with me at these time markers real quick. In verse 
uh, or chapter 1, verse 28. If you've got your Bibles, you can look up, turn the page back. He says, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So there's John's uh, day. He's baptizing. The Jewish leaders come up, and there it is. And then it says in verse 29, see this, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. That's, that's day two. And then in verse 35, it says the next day, John was standing with his disciples. That's day three. And then look at verse 43. It says, then the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. That's day four. And then when you get to chapter two, verse one, you know what it says? Then on the third day, you know how many days that is? Seven days. I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't know that I'd take a bullet for this. But I think it's very likely I mean, one, John is a literary genius through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, he's just recounted to us that Jesus, he's the eternal Word of God, the eternal Son of God, the one through whom nothing is made that has been made. It came from Jesus. And here we're given seven days. You know, it's... Um, it's, it's interesting. Uh, there are six days of creation if you go to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And then on the seventh day, what you find is that God rested from all the work that he had done. And here what John, I think, is announcing is that here on the third day is the seventh day, and the work continues. God rests on the seventh day because he takes creation from chaos and darkness to light and life. And yet Jesus has shown up in the midst of a new chaos and a new darkness to, to inaugurate a new creation. And here on the seventh day, the work picks back up. Creation, we also find out, ends with a wedding in Genesis chapter 2. New creation begins at a wedding. And it's the foreshadowing of a greater wedding and a greater banquet that begins eternity when all things are made new. So that's the setting. Look, look at the scene beginning in verse 2. It says, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him that they have no wine. First thing to notice is Jesus is the kind of guy who gets invited to a party. He's the kind of guy who gets invited to a wedding. John the Baptist, not so much. It's not, he's a, it's like, uh, John's not on the list, is he? No, 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 no. We, we didn't invite him. I'm not even sure he's going to shower before he shows up, you know? But Jesus, Jesus is the guy you, you invite to the party. He's the guy you invite to the celebration. And this wedding, the, listen, we should read it. If we were in the first century and we were reading this, we would. We would gasp that the wine ran out. It would have been a huge embarrassment in a culture that is built around honor and shame. And here this couple seriously could be marked for the rest of their marriage by this. And so in this simple language and communicating profound and divine truths, John likely includes this miracle because of what it says about Jesus. 
You know, in, in chapter one, you heard that Jesus is, you know, he's, he's the eternal word of God. And then you find out that he is the one who is the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And then, uh, and then you find out from, from Nathaniel's lips that he's, uh, you know, behold, you, you are uh, the, the Messiah. You, you, you're, the, um, you're the Christ. You're the son of God. He's, the, he's uh, Jacob's ladder. Here we see this picture of him as creator. We see this picture of him as the one who transforms. In the midst of solving a very real problem and, and blessing with phenomenal grace, a very real and very ordinary couple, Jesus is pointing to something great. The image of having no wine is very much an image of Israel of the day. To, to have no wine is an image that invokes, uh, invokes barrenness and joylessness. And that's why that at the end of, of the prophets, you'll see as they're announcing a better day to come, the prophets are always saying, hey, today is really bad. And today's really bad, and it's your fault because you're rebellious and you're sinful. And you haven't worshipped God, and your heart is duplicitous. And yet the prophets will end that there is a better day coming. There is hope coming. The prophets that write during exile, there's a day you'll get to be back in the land. The end of Amos, listen to how Amos says it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. They're not here yet, but they're coming. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, who, uh, him who sows the seed. What he's saying is, listen, it, it's going to be so abundant. There's going to be so much abundance. There's going to be so much fruit. There's going to be so much multiplying that the one who is sowing he, he won't get it all sowed before the plowman now comes back up. The one who reaps everything, he won't get it all reaped before it's time for the one who plows to come back through and plant the seeds. It'll be that abundant. And then he says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. Oh, there's a day coming when there will be abundance and blessing and grace, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit, and I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted, says the Lord your God. I think in many ways Jesus is pointing to this. He takes an opportunity to for this living parable of, of the barrenness of the Israel that he came to and the world that he stepped into. And Jesus is going to show us a glimpse of what he came to do. Now let's look at a really difficult verse for a second. Look at chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. It says this, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So, so it's, it's kind of hard to read. I mean, if you hear it, you think, well, well, maybe in the first century that's how sons talk to their mothers. No, it's not. And you, she probably felt a lot like your mom would feel if you call her this afternoon and say, woman, 
Why have you been calling me? What, what business do you have with me? I don't think that's going to go well. I wouldn't do it with your wife either, okay? Just by the way. I mean, so I would say this. It's, it's, it's not rude, but it's not, it's not endearing. It, it's, it's courteous, but at the same time, it's abrupt. I think there's two things going on here. I think one, if John in, in all truth wants us to have creation in the back of our minds, I think maybe there is this reference that as we read this, our minds then go back to Genesis chapter 3. There they are in the garden, and they've sinned, and they've fallen, and God announces the curses, and then comes to the woman. And in Genesis 3.15, there is this blessing to come to the woman, that through the woman will come a seed, and that seed will crush the head of the serpent, while having his heel bruised. And you don't know it in Genesis 3.15, but you come to see that all of human history is now looking for and longing for, and the, and the biblical account is tracing the line of the seed. And now Jesus shows up, and I think he's saying to Mary, woman, I'm the seed. I'm here. But at the same time, my time has not come yet. The glory that I came to reveal in all of its fullness, that is not going to happen until my death. And part of this, you know, what, what does this have to do with me? This is, this is one, I think, of the most difficult things to hear for Mary, but one of the most necessary things for her to hear as well. Because I think what Jesus is doing is that he is separating himself from Mary. He's differentiating. He is transferring their relationship from mother to son. And now Jesus is approaching her as a sinner who needs a Savior. See, Jesus will live some 30 years, learned the trade of carpentry, hadn't begun his ministry it's very likely that Mary and, and the family depended upon Jesus as the oldest son if, in fact, Joseph had died and she was a widow. But 40 days or 50 days before this, Jesus will be baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit will come upon him. The ministry will begin. He goes to the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days. He endures the temptation of the enemy, comes in, calls his disciples, and this is the beginning of his ministry. And I think what he's saying to Mary, partly what he's saying to Mary is, Mom, you don't need me as a son anymore. You're going to need to come to me as your Savior. There's no inside track on faith. You don't inherit it. You don't give birth to it. You don't get it from your parents. Mary's going to have to come to a place where as a sinner she is saved by grace through faith. In Jesus, as the one who is the Son of God, the Christ. And of all people, this would have been the most difficult, I imagine, for Mary. She knew about him. I mean, the angels had come and, and had told the birth, and she'd known just the miraculous circumstances of the birth. And certainly she'd seen, I mean, 
Do you have a child that grows up and in 30 years has never said a crossword to you? You've never had to discipline? He, he has been perfect. And yet you find Mary in the gospel struggling. Jesus will begin to make claims. He'll begin to make his declarations. The crowds will begin to turn on him. The religious leaders want to persecute him, and she's worried for him. So that he, she and his brothers, they go and they try to get him because they think he's gone mad. Because even Mary, with all she knew, didn't fully understand what Jesus came to do. In some ways, I think Jesus is saying, Mom, you can't look at me as your son anymore. I've got to become your Savior. Well, when he says my hour has not yet come, five times we'll see this statement before we get to chapter 13. That the hour hasn't yet come. The hour that he's speaking of is his, is his death and his burial and his resurrection. That, that's the hour that he came from. For. And, he, and he wants to make this distinction. Hey, listen, I, I didn't come here to do miracles. You, you, salvation is not believing that I can do powerful miracles. The hour that's to come, salvation comes from knowing that I died in your place, that your sin was laid upon me, and I died a death that you deserved so that you could live the life that I have. I'll take all that is unclean about you so that in turn I can purify you and make you whole. I'll die your death so you can live my life. That's the hour. And this isn't the hour and this problem being solved isn't the basis of faith, although the disciples, they will believe, but they will come to a much fuller belief as a fuller display of His glory is revealed. So, what Jesus does is He works behind the scenes here. Only those closest to Him will actually know what He's done. They'll catch a glimpse of this glory, of this first glory being manifested. But the attention of the of the event won't be on Jesus. He leaves that for the couple. He lets them shine. You know, it's interesting. John places this miracle and lots of what Jesus does in the midst of the most intimate moments of life in weddings and funerals. He is not devoid from the hardships and the joys of life. He is there in the midst of them. Now, look at what it says. Um, so his mom says, okay, we'll do whatever he tells you to do. And so John then begins to tell us about what's going on there, the sign that Jesus is going to do. And it says this, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And then they filled them to the brim. And then they said, then he said to them, to the servants, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now, can you imagine the faith it would have taken those servants? So, wait a minute. Uh, we, Jesus, we know you're not from Cana, um, but we don't, that's not water we drink. This is water people 
wash their hands with. You know, they wash their face with it. We clean our dishes with it. It's, it's purification water. We don't drink that. And yet what Jesus tells them to do, they did. And so they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and he didn't know where it came from, but the servants, they knew. And the master of the feast is going to call the bridegroom to himself and make a declaration. But, but I want you to see this for a second. Jesus could have solved the problem any way he wanted to. I mean, he is God. And I don't know that Mary fully expected or understood or even conceived of how Jesus might solve this problem. She just knows. I've lived with that, that guy for 30 years, and I know that he knows how to solve a problem. And while he had done no miracles before, she, she'd caught wind of his majesty, I'm sure. And as a mother feeling the pain, I sh- have no doubt she would have felt for this couple. They've got to be saved from this embarrassment. And so he could have solved it any way he wanted to. But here's the deal. He cho- chooses to bless this couple and point to who he is and what he came to do. The water jars for Jewish rites of purification... Clearly, this is a picture of pointing to the Old Testament. You know, the fact that there are six jars may further point to the insufficiency and the incompleteness of the law. Listen, the law, Paul will say, is good, it's holy, it's righteous, it's, it's, it's blameless. The law is good, but it can't save you. You read the law, you know what it does? It reads you back. You read the law and it indicts you. You read the law and it convicts you. You read the law and you realize your problems are worse than you could have ever imagined. This is the standard. And you'll never reach it. You can't do enough or be enough. Wash yourself enough make enough vows, clean your life up enough to matter. The law will diagnose you, but it offers no cure. And Jesus comes to say, I am fulfilling the law. Everything the law demands, I am fulfilling. Everything that is incomplete and insufficient, I'm making complete. I'm bringing to sufficiency. That's why fill it to the brim. I've come. I've come to bring new wine. I have come to bring new life. I have come to bring a new covenant. I have come to be all that you need to stand before God. This old order is passing away. The new age is coming. And so the master of the feast will make this declaration, this saying of the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone who serves, everyone serves the good wine first. And then when people have drunk freely, their lips are numb and their tongues are numb and they're not discerning any more than the poor wine. I mean, this is how people usually do it. The good wine's first, and then, you know, 
Then it's the Mad Dog 2020 after that. <laughs> but you've kept the good wine till now. Oh, the best is yet to come. Pretty interesting. Every miracle that John shares, oh, listen, all the miracles are a display of the power and majesty of Jesus. They, they are. It appears, though, in John, it seems as though John wants to make sure he goes over the top to show you just how excellent, just how lavish, just how powerful Jesus is. He never just does enough. It's, it's over and abundantly more than you could have ever asked or imagined. I'm not just raising Lazarus from the dead. I'm going to wait till he's really dead and he stinks. And then I'll raise him. And power over death and decay. And on this final day of Jesus' first week of ministry, Jesus the Messiah provides his followers with the very first sign. And that's the analysis. That's the substance there in verse 11. This, this the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed him. It's the first of seven signs. There's all these sevens throughout John. Seven signs, seven I am's, seven disciples named, seven days. You get to the end, you get to Revelation, there's seven churches and seven seals and seven years and so on. It's, just, it's a picture of completion. And this is the very beginning of what he's come to do. In Jesus, in his humanity, the glory of God is being revealed. In fact, that's what John will say at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. He says, and from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace, grace lavished upon grace. Grace, the, the waves of grace is rolling in on top of you. And then he says, for the law, it was given through Moses. Grace and truth, that comes through Jesus Christ. And here, Here's the beginning of that glory being revealed. You know, if you were to trace that, we've talked about it, but if you trace it, it first revealed to Moses, then to the Israelites as they wander in the wilderness, and the glory of God dwelled in the tabernacle. Later, to dwell in the temple, it was the presence of God with His people. The, the weight of the presence of the glory of the Lord dwelt with His people, and, and then, but yet His people rebelled, and they... They never lived with him in a way that they worshipped him. So in Ezekiel chapter 10, it often says, I think it's one of the saddest chapters in all the Bible, the glory of the Lord gets up out of the Holy of Holies, walks out into the inner court, and then out through the outer court, out the east gate, and then ascends to heaven on a chariot, and people are left without the presence of God, and they become vulnerable. They are exiled. They are kicked out of their land. When they finally do come back into the land, they build the temple with hopes that God's glory would return, and it never returned until John declares 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. And the first glimpse of that was at that wedding. But there was more to come. And actually what is to come we couldn't have we couldn't have even yet imagined what Jesus was going to do. As we close I want to draw a line for you. I don't think I'm too far out on a limb when I draw this line. But I'm going to draw a line. I want you to see something that I think God throughout his word is doing for us. You know, the creation story, I said, it culminates in a wedding there at the end of Genesis chapter 2. And, and what has happened is, is that God's created Adam, and he's, you know, he's, it's not good that he's alone. And, and so all the, he names all the animals, and there wasn't a suitable helper found for him. And God's wanting Adam to know his loneliness. God's wanting Adam to know his need. God's wanting Adam to know that he's not complete. He cannot be the image of God all by himself. But then what God does is something of a fascination to me. In Genesis 2, it says that he put Adam to sleep. The word there is this deep sleep, this death-like sleep. In fact, everybody that God puts into this death-like sleep, they wake up, and the world is completely different when they wake up. It is for Adam. It will be for Abraham. And so he puts him to sleep, and then what God does is he goes to Adam, and he wounds Adam by opening up his side, pulling out the rib, creating, fashioning a bride for him. Seals Adam back up and brings him back awake, back to life. You know what Adam says? First human words recorded in Scripture. You know what they are? At last. I've been waiting for you all my life, and I didn't even know it. There you are. Jesus' ministry here in John's gospel, it begins with a wedding, with a wedding feast. And I think in every way, then it points us to a greater wedding and a greater feast. And you see it in Revelation chapter 9. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, John's describing Jesus as the bridegroom. He's the groom. And we're the bride. His people are the bride. And we're dressed in pure white. And we have been cleansed and sanctified and made holy and pure. And a feast laid before us that all of history is leading to this great wedding feast. In fact, God often refers to his people as his bride. In Hosea, what you find is that the bride is adulterous, and, and yet in his great love for her, goes into the marketplace and ransoms her out of slavery. And washes her and cleans her. Paul will use the illustration in, in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? Well, he gave himself up for her. 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus came to die so that we might live. In fact, Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. He's the greater Adam who will give up his life. He will die our death. And you know, the last act of human rebellion and cruelty towards Jesus, his side is pierced with a spear. Jesus dies, lays dead for three days, and is resurrected to new life. He conquers death. And we, we now are welcomed as his bride. And that even before the events of the garden, that God was showing us, how much do he love us? Creating a language for us that when he calls us bride, we'd know what it is that he's our groom. John's gospel is written so that in it you would see who Jesus is. You would see what Jesus has done. You would believe that he's the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing You'd have life in his name. That's what John 20 says. In fact, I think in many ways what this is, is this is John, John's gospel is a love letter from Jesus. He's come to restore our joy in the midst of barrenness. He's come to solve our problem in the midst of our shame. He's, he's, he's come to, to free us, to ransom us from our sin, to heal our brokenness, to reveal his glory, to raise us from death in sin to new life in him. It, you might think of it this way. John's gospel. It's a, it's a marriage proposal. I remember when I proposed to Leslie. I'd gotten the ring. I'd planned on maybe a Christmas time. It was about this time in the fall, actually. And I'd gotten the ring and thought, oh, I'll wait till Christmas. I couldn't actually hang on to it longer than 72 hours. I got so nervous, so I created this elaborate scheme. We were going to go take these pictures around town. It was going to end at this place called the Grace Museum, which I didn't know how fitting that would be for our wedding, for our marriage, that we, it began at a place called Grace. I ended up talking my way into them letting me have set up this candlelight dinner on the roof. So we started in the early evening. It was just about dusk. And we've gone to take our pictures at the Grace. And we're going to head up to the roof. And let's say, are you sure we can go up there? And I'm like, oh, I know we can go up there. And I've got the ring. And we come in and we go around the corner. And there she sees on the roof the candlelight and the table with the white linen. And turns around and there I am on my knee. I hold up a ring, and I said, will you, will you marry me? And then there was this awkwardly long pause. (laughs) 
part of me is thinking, this isn't, this isn't going how I thought it was going to go. And it was, just, I think she was trying to take it all in. I, I mean, I, I, I stunned her. I confused her. I overwhelmed her with my love. She starts to take the ring, and I'm like, hey, whoa, whoa. you got to say yes first. <laughs> well, she does. You know, if this is a proposal, and I think it is, there's only two answers. There's yes and there's no. And there's a sense in which Jesus, in taking on humanity, in the Word becoming flesh, He comes and He takes a knee before you. He says, will you be my bride? I will give my life for you. I will cleanse you from all that has stained you. I'll heal you from every brokenness. I want you with me forever. Yes or no? John will lead us over and over and over again to answer that question. Yes or no? What do you choose? If you're here this morning and you've never said yes, you somehow think, my life's okay, or I'm, I'm doing okay, or at the end of the day, when everything gets weighed, I've done more good than bad, and I'm, I'm certainly not as bad as a lot of people I see around this room. And listen, none of those things are enough. None of those things are enough. Jesus came to do it all. So the old is gone and the new has come. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray you'd do what only you can do. And that's open our hearts and open our minds and give us eyes to see who you are.